Ned Kelly is popularly known as the Australian Robin Hood, a semi-mythical figure drawn from the traditions of the highwayman. Depending on who you speak to, he's a cultural icon, a social revolutionary, or just another stone-cold killer. The harsh realities of life on the fringes in the bushland territories of colonial Australia shaped the man he would become, and the legend that would emerge. This is Ned Kelly Part 3, The Iron Man. 26 of June, 1880. Late evening. The small town of Sebastopol in the Woolshed Valley is mostly asleep. A few lights glow from behind curtains in the wooden buildings along the main street. But at Devil's Elbow, on the outskirts of the town, the dirt road is blanketed in darkness. Anton Wick, a surly German resident of Sebastopol, is walking home when two riders approach from the shadows. Their long coats and low hats hide their identities. But as they pass, they double back and call out to Wick. Do you know me? Asks the first man, sweeping open his coat to reveal a revolver pushed into his belt. I am Joe Byrne, and this is Dan Kelly. Dan Kelly tips his hat back and grins at the quivering man. He climbs down and slaps a pair of handcuffs on Wick, leading him off the road. The outlaws know very well the house they're steering him towards. Joe Byrne grew up in Sebastopol and, despite his outlaw status, returns regularly to visit his mother. But tonight, he's come to visit someone else. This simple shack is the home of Aaron Sherritt, Joe's childhood best friend. And despite Sherritt's skinny six-foot frame, he's a respected bare-knuckle boxer. Here, at his house, the gang hid out immediately after the police killings at Stringybark. With his flashy clothes and hat chinstrap under his nose, he's a well-known Greta Mob member and a longtime supporter of the Kellys. Until recently. Word has reached Ned Kelly that Aaron Sherritt has turned into a police informant. Punishing the betrayal is one thing, but what's about to happen is part of a bigger plan. Tonight, Ned's war will begin. Joe Byrne forces Wick to knock on the back door. When Sherrod's wife shouts out, Wick replies in his distinctive German accent that he's lost his way in the dark. Chuckling, Sherrod opens the door. He has no idea that his old friend Joe Byrne is hiding in the shadows outside. Without a word, Byrne steps forward, leveling his shotgun at the poor man's throat. Sherrod has no time to react. Byrne pulls the trigger. As Sherrod falls backwards into the room, Byrne shoots again, filling his belly with lead shot. Screams erupt inside the house as Sherrod's wife and mother-in-law leap to their feet. Joe steps over the gasping man, dropping the smoking shotgun and whipping out a revolver. He orders them to open the front door. As soon as the bolts are drawn back, 
Dan Kelly steps inside, waving his own revolver and grinning at the body on the floor. Joe asks knowingly if anyone is in the house. He glances at the single bedroom off to the side. He knows very well who's in there. Since turning informant, Sherritt has had his own police protection detail, four constables who are currently cowering under the bed. Joe fires a shot into the room, but the terrified constables will not come out. A standoff ensues until Joe tires of waiting. Rather than risk going into the room to be met by a bullet, instead, he goes outside to collect kindling to burn the place down. Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne taunt the officers as they light the brushwood. Luckily for all inside, the house fails to catch, and after several attempts, the two outlaws ride off into the bush, never to step foot in the town again. This is no random revenge killing. Ned Kelly knows how desperate the authorities are to catch him, and that this offense will trigger a reaction. Although the police don't know it yet, they're heading for the final showdown on Ned's terms. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains, many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. The Ned Kelly story reaches its terrifying conclusion, leading to one of the most iconic gunfights in criminal history. Last time we saw how Ned killed several policemen sent into the bush to track him down, then turned to audacious bank heists to fund his life on the run. He's now started down a path he can't return from, even if he wanted to. The police are finally closing in, but Ned doesn't plan on going quietly. In the summer of 1879, media and government criticism of the handling of the Kelly outbreak prompts a change in strategy. The ineptitude of the police is highlighted, and the spiraling costs force them to withdraw troops and officers stationed at targets or joining in the manhunt. Instead, focusing on informants and small-scale targeted surveillance. Finally, the police have infiltrated the Kellys' network of sympathizers. But a far greater concern for the Kellys is the team of aboriginal trackers that were brought in following their raid on the bank at Geraldi in New South Wales. Fearing the special team of native police will pick up their trail, the Kelly gang have retreated deeper into the bush. All the while, stolen New South Wales banknotes have been turning up across the territory. Once again, the gang have distributed the proceeds of the heist to friendly local farmers, hoping to curry favor and support. The thick canopy of trees hides a small group of men moving silently through the branches. At the head of the group, 
A tall Aboriginal man holds up his hand. The rest of the group stops. He carefully places his rifle against a tree and wipes his hands on his military uniform. Behind him, five more Aboriginal men scan the trees, eyes alert to the smallest details. A broken twig, a bent branch, flattened plants. Behind them, a white officer glances around nervously, eyes twitching at every bird call. The lead tracker crouches, staring hard at the trail. The officer raises his revolver, pulling back the hammer. The sound draws the ire of the man at the head of the group. He glances round and hisses to his colleague, who joins him. The second tracker crouches and runs his hand across the ground. It's said these men can tell what sort of horse and rider passed through by its hoof marks, can identify a sweat stain where someone has leaned against a branch, or pick out a solitary drop of dried blood on a blade of grass. After a brief conversation, the lead tracker stands and nods to the officer, who waves his revolver. Onwards. The group silently creeps forward through, the trees and bush closing behind them. Within seconds, they're gone, leaving no evidence of their passage. The net is closing. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, a vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Despite the vast police operation, the native police trackers are the only men Ned truly fears. He knows he can't hide in the bush from them forever, and it's their skill and fearsome reputation that finally prompts the Kelly gang to switch things up a gear. Now, it's war. The town of Sebastopol sits in the heart of Kelly country. The gang members have hidden out here many times. It's here that Ned's lieutenant, Joe Byrne, went to school with Aaron Sherritt, Sherritt, a member of the Greta mob, is taking money from the police as an informer. Four police constables are permanently stationed in Sherritt's home for his protection and to keep watch on the neighborhood. On the evening of the 26th of June, 1880, the Kelly gang break cover to start their war. Ned's plan is to escalate the conflict into a full-scale uprising or to scare the government into calling off the manhunt. The murder of Aaron Sherritt is just the spark. 
He knows that as soon as word of the murder leaks out, and that the Kellys have emerged from the bush, the police will load up a train wagon full of officers to chase them down. As Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne ride away from Sebastopol early on the 27th of June, leaving Aaron Sherritt's bloody corpse behind them, they imagine the police sending frantic telegraphs and officers in Melbourne loading weapons ready to race north. They spur their horses onward towards their rendezvous with Ned Kelly and Steve Hart in the sleepy town of Glen Rowan. Graham Seal is a professor of folklore at Curtin University in Perth and author of Tell Him I Died Game, The Legend of Ned Kelly. The plan was that they would take over the hotel at Glen Rowan and they would have the railway line pulled up once the news went back to Melbourne that they were there. They knew the police would send a train full of people to get them. Ned knows the train packed with police will speed through Glen Rowan on their way north to Sebastopol. They can't afford to miss the opportunity to catch up with Ned and his gang. Ned's plan is to sabotage a section of tracks on a curve in the line behind the Glen Rowan Hotel, sending the train plunging down an embankment where most of the occupants will be killed. The gang will then rain hot lead down upon any survivors, like shooting fish in a barrel. They'll kill off most of the police in the region in one fell swoop, leaving the HQ at Benalla ripe for takeover. They sabotaged the tracks by yeah, kidnapping a few railway fettlers working on the track and had them dig it up. But they all collected all the local people around that area, around Glen Rowan, and took everyone to the Glen Rowan Hotel, where they again had a party. It was one of the features of the Kelly's raids and holdups. Everyone had a party, again, with the grog supplied by the publican's expense. Hold up in the Glen Rowan Hotel. Now all the gang need to do is wait. But it turns into a long wait. Unbeknownst to them, the terrified policemen back at Aaron Sherritt's hut remain hidden under the bed until well into the following day. When word finally does reach the police in town... It's late afternoon. They'd been in there for quite a long time and the train hadn't come and the bush rangers were getting a bit worried about why the train hadn't come. But uh, anyway, the grog was flowing, everyone was still having a good time. But as the hours tick by and more beer bottles are emptied, it gets more difficult to keep all the prisoners in one place and under control. The stress is taking its toll on Ned too. Cracks are beginning to show. Meanwhile, word of Sherritt's murder and the re-emergence of the Kelly gang has finally reached the police. The team of Aboriginal trackers are requested to accompany the police to Sebastopol to pick up the trail before it cools. A special train is prepared and dozens of journalists pile on board. With only bad press since the bank raids, the police are keen to ensure there are plenty of reporters on hand to report on the steps they are taking to hunt the gang down. By 10 p.m., the wheels on the police train are finally moving, from Melbourne to Benalla to pick up the rest of the reinforcements. Nobody on the train has any inkling of what awaits them at Glen Rowan. By now, there are almost 60 hostages holed up in the Glen Rowan Inn. The party continues into the night with endless drinking, games, and music. Sometime after sundown, Ned Kelly heads for the nearby police barracks 
to take the solitary constable there prisoner. A local teacher, Thomas Curnow, accompanies him. After making himself useful during the day, Curnow has earned the trust of the Kellys. Ned is used to getting support from the local populace. He's a local legend, after all. It's a fatal error. Thomas Curnow had a wife at home and he asked Ned Kelly if he could go and look after his wife. Kelly, perhaps unwisely, trusted him to do so and sent him off out into the night. And of course, he went down the railway line as far as he needed to and flagged down the police train, which by that time had started to appear in the distance and warned them. Ned is delivering a lecture to the remaining hostages when Dan rushes in with news that the police train has arrived, intact. After being tipped off, it stopped outside Glen Rowan, just a few miles before the sabotaged tracks. The only thing that's gone off the rails is Ned's plan. It's easy to imagine the moment of uneasy silence that must have passed between the outlaws as they eye one another, silence hanging in the air between them as they hesitate over the next move. No one wants to suggest that they make a run for it, but the odds are now badly stacked against them. Eventually, Ned rises, and with steely determination, gives the order to get ready. They still have their secret weapon, after all. The four outlaws prepare for their last stand. They douse all the lights in the inn, then unpack their bags to reveal their ace in the hole. One of the gang opens a case to reveal several sheets of thick metal plate. Apparently what happened was that the outlaws and their friends went around the countryside getting old plowshares. A local blacksmith who was one of their sympathizers fashioned those plowshares into those suits of armor, the helmets and the breastplates and the, uh, the groin guards that uh, you know, were such famous icons of the Kelly story. The bulletproof armor is Ned's idea, though no one quite knows how he came up with it. Some think it comes from a passage in his favorite book, Lorna Dune, about a family of 17th century English outlaws. The sheets are riveted together to protect the men's torsos and groins. Each man has crafted a helmet resembling an upturned can, like a medieval knight, with a slit visor and long piece down the front to protect their necks. The pieces are held together by straps of leather, with padding and head straps to take the weight. Ned's armor weighs 44 kilograms, about half his body weight. Yes, they did work very well, and they were very heavy as well. <laughs> Ned was okay because he was such a big bloke. The other guys were a bit smaller than him, and his younger brother Dan, I think in particular, wasn't very, very big at all. Um, so they had a bit of trouble getting around in theirs and were fairly reluctant to wear them. But at Glen Rowan itself, of course, they did wear that armor, and it did protect them. It's close to 3 a.m. on the 28th of June, 1880. Ned takes out a green silk sash, his prized reward for saving a young boy from drowning as a child, and ties it about his waist before donning his armor. The four men wear long oilskin riding coats over the top. Each man picks up his weapon, cocks it, and steps outside. The police are surrounding the gang. They creep through the meadow in front of the inn. Hidden in the shadows of the hotel veranda, the four outlaws stand silently 
waiting until the police are only 30 yards away. A sudden, terrible sight confronts the officers as the four iron-clad figures step forward into the moonlight and open fire. Immediately, the officer leading the charge is caught in the wrist, shattering the bone. Shouts go up around the inn as the police scramble for cover under the outlaws' volleys. Bullets erupt from all directions, pummeling the wooden paneling of the inn, zinging off steel. The Aboriginal tracker squad take cover in a drainage ditch in front of the inn to return fire with their high-powered rifles. The outlaws mock and jeer from the veranda as bullets spark off the armor and ricochet into the night. They take everything that's thrown at them, leaving the officers dumbfounded, but the outlaws aren't quite as invulnerable as they seem. Ned is hit in an unprotected foot, and a bullet finds Burns' leg. Behind them, hostages inside are hit by ricocheting or ill-placed police bullets. The gang retreat to the rear of the hotel to reload, hastily checking injuries. Ned is bleeding. He's been shot in the hand and arm as well as his foot. Byrne is finding it difficult to move. The media were there in great numbers because it was easy to get there from Melbourne on the train line, telegraph line was going. There were said to be 500 spectators at this event. The press immediately got going with their reports and put them on the wires and they went straight out all over Australia and all over the world. In fact, made headlines around the world. Chaos reigns as the police scramble to surround the building. Dan Kelly, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart take positions by the windows. Ned takes advantage of the confusion and manages to slip away from the rear of the hotel, darting into the bush. He's planning to ambush the officers from behind, but his wounds are taking their toll. Soon, he's lying low behind a log, bleeding, panting, mustering his strength for his final assault. But before he can return to the fray, he passes out, leaving his three friends to battle the police without him. The police have the inn surrounded and pour a huge amount of lead into the thin walls. Eventually, the firing dies down with intermittent blasts shattering the cold morning air. The siege reaches a deadlock. Telegraphs are sent, ordering all available police in the area to converge on Glen Rowan. The gang have nowhere to go. At around 5 a.m., with no sign of Ned, Joe Byrne pours himself a drink. He holds the glass up and makes a toast to the gang. Here's to many more days in the bush, boys. <laughs> it's a dark touch of sarcastic humor at a pivotal moment. A bullet fired from outside finds a gap in his armor and slices into his thigh, severing the femoral artery. Joe Byrne slumps to the floor, bleeding out within minutes as Dan Kelly and Steve Hart continue to fire through the windows. They're trapped and starting to panic. They must think their fearless leader has fled. A second police train pulls into Glen Rowan, then a third from Benalla. Dozens of officers swarm the town, vastly outnumbering the outlaws. The siege's bloody conclusion is close at hand. It's dawn outside the Glen Rowan Hotel. Thanks to a lull in the shooting, the sound of birds waking in the trees can be heard at the back of the building. 
A constable lies in the grass, keeping his tired eyes trained down his rifle at a window, when another sound reaches him. At first he thinks the breaking undergrowth behind him is an officer making the rounds. But then the labored breathing reaches him, rasping muffled breaths like a wounded animal in the bush. The constable turns and nearly drops his rifle in fright. A supernatural figure, bathed in a halo of glorious dawn sunlight, stands towering terrifyingly above him. Ned Kelly, his armor dented, disheveled overcoat draped about his shoulders like a cape, lurches forward through the steam rising from the ground. The panicked constable opens fire at close range, but the bullets spark and fly off into the bushes. Other men turn and cry out loud as the apparition strides towards them. Some shout that a ghost is upon them, others that the devil himself has appeared behind their lines. Ned laughs in the onslaught of lead, banging his pistol on his chest and shouting that he is invincible. Police around the hotel leave their posts, rushing to the rear of the hotel to see what the commotion is. Ned fires at anything that moves, and the police soon find themselves caught in a crossfire as Dan and Steve give Ned covering fire. After almost half an hour staggering in circles, peering through the narrow slit of his helmet to occasionally shoot at the darting figures, Ned is semi-conscious. Taking bullet after bullet from the weaving policeman, he stumbles backwards, leaning against a fallen tree. Two policemen approach the iron giant cautiously. Ned raises his revolver, but the heavy helmet makes getting a bearing on the blurred men difficult. The first constable manages to get close enough to shoot repeatedly into Ned's helmet at point-blank range, hammering him sideways. With the clanging steel echoing through the trees, the second constable stealthily approaches and shoots Ned in the unprotected pelvis and leg. Ned finally collapses to the mud, dropping his gun. His helmet is yanked off to reveal his battered, bruised, swollen face, beard matted with sweat, the deep purple pallor of exertion and bruises making him barely recognizable as the handsome young outlaw of the previous day. An officer drops to his knees and starts to strangle Ned until a second constable levels his shotgun at him and says, You kill him and I'll shoot ya. The officer reluctantly backs off and orders Ned carried through the trees to a clearing where a doctor slices off the leather straps holding on his armor. As gunfire still sputters from the last defenders inside, Ned is carried away. The great outlaw the Iron Man has finally been felled. Ned is carried to the train station and laid on a mattress, his clothing and boots cut off, and his wounds dressed. Aside from the terrible bruises, his arms and legs are riddled with bullets. He's lost a lot of blood and slips in and out of consciousness. Underneath his armor, they also find the blood-stained green sash, the symbol of his Irish pride and a memento from his youth when anything had seemed possible for young Ned. 
when they took the armour off him at Glen Rowan after the police had brought him down, uh, they found that he was wearing that sash. He didn't get to keep it though, because the doctor that attended his wounds stole it and souvenired it. It's only relatively recently that it's come back into kind of public view again, handed down in the family for a generation or two. Meanwhile, there's still Steve and Dan to deal with, as well as a hotel full of hostages. The police set fire to the hotel while the hostages were inside, the bushrangers that were left, and um, they wouldn't let them out. They tried to run out and the police kept firing at them. They tried that three times until eventually the officer in charge did tell them to stop firing and let the hostages out but leave the two remaining bushrangers who were alive inside. By now, crowds have gathered, some to show solidarity, others to gawk. Ned's family arrive and are allowed to speak to Ned in custody in the train station as the siege reaches its conclusion. Finally, in front of the onlookers, the burning walls of the inn fall away to reveal the corpses of Dan Kelly and Steve Hart. Eventually, the hotel burnt down. One of the hostages was left inside because he was just missed. I guess he was an old man. He later died of his wounds. Several of the hostages were wounded, and one of them at least had wounds that lasted him all his life because he was badly shot. They pulled out the charred remains of the two bushrangers um, in, in, after the uh, fire had started to subside. The siege of Glen Rowan is over, along with the reign of the Kelly gang. After his capture, the doctors tend to Ned. They stem the bleeding and mend the wounds. Over the coming weeks, he's carefully nursed back to health to face justice standing upright. There'll be no cheating the hangman. Examples must be made. Public enemy number one must answer for his crimes. Ned is eventually taken to Melbourne jail by train and packed straight into the heavily guarded prison hospital. After a short period convalescing, he's well enough to stand trial. He stands accused of murder, bank robbery, resisting arrest, and a string of minor offenses. Given the overwhelming evidence and the fact he's penned two letters to the police and newspapers admitting to everything he stands accused of, the outcome seems a foregone conclusion. The trial concludes in October 1880. In those days, defendants didn't speak at their trials. Their lawyer had to do it all for them. Uh, when it ended and he was decided that he was guilty, um, the judge went to pronounce sentence and started doing so, but then Ned jumped in and started saying that he wasn't really guilty and he could have proved if he wanted to and that the whole thing was really just a charade. The judge, who was a Protestant um, Englishman and of the upper classes, <laughs> and he was um, not happy about this, so he started to come back at Ned, of course, uh, and there was a bit of banter and exchange between them. Anyway, he did eventually get the death verdict out and the death sentence out and said, uh, you'll be hanged by the neck until you're dead. And Ned Kelly replied, I will see you there, which, again, wasn't what you're supposed to say. Anyway, and what happened three days later was, of course, that that judge did, in fact, die after Ned Kelly. So the kind of folklore of it is that he's uh, been somehow meeting Ned <laughs> wherever Ned went. The sentence is to be carried out on the 11th of November. In the week leading up to the execution date, thousands rally outside the old Melbourne jail. A petition for clemency is submitted with over 32,000 signatures. 
but shortly afterwards, it is confirmed that Ned will swing. In the lead up, Ned is belligerent and boastful, but as his last day on Earth draws closer, he goes quiet. He never expresses any sorrow or regret for any of his crimes, and continues to dictate rambling letters excusing his actions. The day before his appointment with the hangman, the official jail photographer arrives to take his picture. Now famous, the image shows Ned with a thick, bushy beard hanging down onto his chest, hair swept up and back in a quiff. His thoughtful eyes betray a sadness at his fate, but still sparkle with defiance. He speaks with his family. The last words from his mother are, Mind you, die like a Kelly. It's 8 a.m. on the 11th of November, 1880. After a blacksmith removes his leg irons, a Catholic priest arrives to lead Ned Kelly, guards on either side, to the condemned cell. There, he sits on a hard bench to receive the last rites. At 10 a.m., the prison governor arrives, followed by the hangman. A white cap is placed on Ned's head. His arms are bound behind him, and he takes his last steps to the gallows. The gallows itself is a simple, thick, wooden beam running across the first-floor gallery of the main prison wing. The noose sits on the floor, leading up and wrapping around the beam several times. Ned stops on the gantry above the center of the prison, facing the governor. A hush falls on the floor below. Everyone present looks up expectantly. Ned's face is pale, eyes full of terror. He'd intended to make a speech to the few spectators gathered below, but can't muster the words. Instead, he mumbles simply, Ah, uh, well... I suppose. He can't finish his sentence. The hangman sweeps up the noose and carefully places it about Ned's neck, adjusting the knot so it sits just in front of his left ear. Leaving no time for Ned to consider his fate, a trapdoor beneath Ned's feet swings open. Ned plummets eight feet before the rope jerks tight. His vertebra are dislocated by the knot, violently pulling his head to the side. Death is instantaneous. After half an hour, when the nerves have finally finished their death twitch, the rope is lowered to the floor. The body is taken out for burial in an unmarked grave in the jail yard. Ned Kelly was just 25 years old. The reward money for capturing Ned Kelly and the other three men is split, mostly by the police. The school teacher, Thomas Kerno, who flagged down the train that night at Glen Rowan, eventually receives 1,000 pounds. The seven Aboriginal trackers who played a pivotal role in forcing Ned out of the bush and into the open also receive a reward. The men are given a measly 50 pounds each. And even then, they don't receive a penny. Their share is given to the government for safekeeping. In the aftermath of the Kelly outbreak, a royal commission is set up to investigate the Victoria Police. 
It exposes widespread corruption and shatters many careers, prompting major reforms of the force. The police change their tactics, promising no more harassment of the Kellys or their supporters. Mrs. Kelly is released from prison in February 1881, soon after her son's execution. She sees in the 20th century and dies at the ripe old age of 95 in 1923. Ned Kelly had been aware of the romantic image of the Bushranger, and he'd tried to live up to this. Bushranger is generally a part of the um, kind of Australian bush myth, where, um, where we've romanticised the bush and all those things with it, the bushman, the bush hero, bullockies and shearers. And Ned Kelly fitted into that, partly because he was a superb bushman, of course, and because he also fitted into that idea of the Australian Robin Hood, the noble robber, bushman, bushranging hero. And uh, he uh, very much fitted the bill for a national hero for people who wish to take that kind of view of Australian history and folklore. Not everyone saw it that way. Today, Ned's final photograph in particular speaks to audiences in the 21st century, becoming a symbol for youth, rebellion, and anti-establishment views. A symbol that the authorities themselves recognized at the time, and in years afterwards, a symbol they tried and failed to stamp out. So on the other side of the ledger, of course, you've got the police who are definitely not happy, the authorities who don't want this kind of thing going on. And when films start to be made, one of the, the first feature film in Australia is about Ned Kelly, is the Ned Kelly story, 1909, I think it was. That film is banned by the authorities and all subsequent bushranging movies up until about the 19, late 1920s, and there were a few of them, are also banned by the authorities because they fear the power of film to turn young men impressionable young chaps into bushrangers and upset the apple cart in the way that Ned did, potentially, and uh, potentially threaten the state. That's that contradiction that you've got. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Of course, the answer is that he's both, and that uh, people will have continued to revile him or celebrate him ever since he was hanged, and continue to do so today. Next time on Real Outlaws. Stand and deliver. The fateful words supposedly spoken by the most famous highwayman in history as Dick Turpin robs the rich on the roads of Georgian England. But are these words really his? His daring exploits have been the subject of ballads, books, plays, and films. But are the legends true? Was there really such a man? Or is the truth a much darker story? Join us for a bloodthirsty tale of murder and mayhem in the English countryside, where we'll meet the real Dick Turpin. That's next time on Real Outlaws. If you're enjoying Noiser podcasts and would like to hear them without adverts, join Noiser Plus today. As well as ad-free listening to Noiser originals including Real Outlaws, Real Dictators, Short History of, and History Daily, you'll get bonus content and early access to new episodes. Start your free trial today with Noiser Plus.